Welcome to Q-Talks, a podcast series by Q-Tech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Emma. And I'm Max. And we are your hosts for Q-Talks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not-so-typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on Q-Talks, we are talking to Joe Shorge, the founder and managing partner of Isomer Capital, one of Europe's leading fund of funds based in London, UK. Isomer has a broad portfolio underlying more than 1,400 companies across 37 countries, from startups to up to 11 companies that have achieved unicorn status and including six IPOs, such as Darktrace, Deliveroo and Acast, to name a few. Having worked as a limited partner, general partner, angel investor, and technology operations executive in the US and Europe over the last 25 years, Joe holds an impressive career trajectory in VC and private investing with distinguished accomplishments. Hello, Joe. Thanks so much for being on the podcast with us today. To begin, please, could you give our listeners an overview of your incredible career? More specifically, we would love to hear about your path into VC and what made you to decide to fund Isomer Capital. Hello, good evening. Thanks so much for inviting me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, you know, I get the question a lot, um, how do you get into VC? What's the, what's the career route into VC? And I think the answer is there isn't really a career route. There, there are a number of routes. But you know, the more you talk to people in VC, the more there are quite individual and unique stories. Um, some of the more normal ones are: I, I founded a company and I built it up and I sold it, and and now I'm gonna, you know, we call it I call it player turned coach. So the the entrepreneur who then becomes an investor. Um, in the old days, there were a lot of former bankers, you know, finance people, um, a lot of consultants, people who'd done strategy consulting and so on. Um, my, my own story is, is, is an odd one. Uh, I went to computer engineering school for, for uni and spent the first 10 years of my career running IT departments, um, first, first for a bank and later for engineering and, and manufacturing companies. So I did a bit of coding in the early days and I managed development teams and so on. Um, I was always the kid with the computer. I always loved computers from from those very early days when I could 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 even use one and, and understand them. Um, and then I really got interested in the idea that, well, if you create a bit of technology in a company, it goes to the benefit of that company and if it's public to the share price. But if you took the same technology out, maybe, maybe a bit of software, or, or, or method or whatever, uh, put it in an independent company and sold it to the world, you could have a much bigger impact and you could create a lot of value for, for lots of people and lots of companies. And so that was my first kind of entry into venture capital in the early 2000s. Um, I worked on some startups and I not, nothing <laughs> ultimately very successful. I met, met investors along the way and, and got bit by the venture capital bug in, in the early 2000s. Now, in the early 2000s, there wasn't much venture capital in Europe. There was a bit. There were you know, some, some interesting firms. But um, I ended up becoming an investment consultant, looking globally at all private markets. 
and and getting into private equity, of which venture capital is a small part. Um, this changed, and and to come to your question, well, why why start Isomer Capital? The the answer is that I saw an amazing opportunity in Europe that really I, people weren't taking advantage of. Institutions certainly weren't taking advantage of it. Um, and that was, what was the opportunity? Well, essentially, today's entrepreneur has better tools that are cheaper and and far more hyper-networked than ever before. So it means if you're an entrepreneur with an idea, you can test that idea very quickly, very cheaply. You can cobble something together in your, in your attic, in your basement, in your bedroom, which kind of, you know, bang it in an app store and send it around the world and see if anyone likes it. And in the old days, you had to invest five or 10 million just to get to that point. Now you can invest nothing and get to that point. So that's a fundamental shift that happened over the last 10, 10 15 years. And, and the, that means entrepreneurs can do more with less, which means that VCs can invest less at the beginning. And then there was a bloom of entrepreneurship, a bloom of VCs. And that, you know, I observed and I was a little bit part of. Um, around the financial crisis time and later. But I didn't see anyone investing in a systematic and rigorous way across Europe. So in other words, what I saw was really great stuff happening in London, of course, but also really great stuff happening in Berlin and Madrid and Stockholm and <laughs> Estonia. And I mean, and on and on and on, really everywhere. Because the entrepreneur is empowered, doesn't really matter so much where they are anymore. And therefore, if you're going to be an investor, uh, the kind of interesting problem, but interesting opportunity, uh, it's the same, the same sides of, of, of two sides of the same coin. How do you find that really exciting thing early? You know, the, the, the guy or, 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 or the lady in, in Madrid with a big idea, maybe world changing, but you've got to kind of be in Madrid to, to know her and to find her, right? And, and then the guy in, in Tallinn, Estonia was a big idea. You know, how do you find it? You've got to be in Tallinn. So I created Isomer really with that idea in mind. You know, I'm not in Tallinn, but I know some really good guys who are. And I'm not in Madrid, but I know some, some really great people who are. And so if I could partner with a group of people who are at, at one moment having a global outlook, but at another moment having a local knowledge, experience, um, ability to work with entrepreneurs, find them, then that would ultimately be quite a powerful investment strategy. So that's essentially what Isomer is. We invest in VC funds located all around Europe. We look for funds that are uh, exciting in their, in their high potential, but also anchored firmly in some um, unfair advantage. You know, they, they can do things others can't. Either they have a technological advantage or geographic advantage or um, for example they were founders in a certain sector of companies and now they're going to invest in in that same sector um, so they have a an advantage because they've done it before um, and then so why do I do that well it's already exciting to do that you can make lots of good returns and lots of good friends and and change the world that's already enough but the, that's kind of the meat and potatoes. The, the spicy part of the meal comes by saying, okay, when that company starts to grow out of its initial city, initial market, well, it needs more capital. It needs international expertise. It needs a lot. 
So maybe through our firm and our network, we could bring internationalization to that local VC and, and to the company. We could bring additional capital so we could co-invest in companies as they grow. Uh, we could provide liquidity when when early investors leave or founders leave. And so by being you know, early and, and together with the VC when they're putting, putting the first capital in, we could then have lots of opportunity as companies grow and um, and, and, and expand in internationally and, and take over the world in whatever their, their segment is. So that's a long explanation of where I came from and how I started Isomer. Please could you give us a bit of an insight into what your average day looks like? What does someone who has been bit by the venture capital bug spend most of their time doing? <laughs> I don't have an average day. And that's part of the challenge and also part of the fun of, of this industry. Every day is different. You never know what's what's coming and there are a lot of days, I mean, probably it's true in, in most of tech, actually. There are a lot of days where you, you know, you get to your desk first thing and you think, well, if I don't, if I only do one thing today, it's, it's this. I've got to get this out, right? And then it's eight o'clock at night and you haven't even started that thing yet. <laughs> so, you know, what, what, what do I spend a lot of time doing? You have to have a, an extensive network. You know, every business is a people business, but, but this one sure is. So we spend a lot of time talking, um, talking to the VCs we work with, talking to entrepreneurs that we think about investing with, talking to investors who allocate capital to us uh, in order to, to fund all, all of this exciting activity. So there's an awful lot of just networking and engaging with ideas. And part of what draws me and, and many people to the industry, I love ideas, um, you know, Startups aren't successful without execution. It's actually all about the execution. But ideas are exciting and engaging. And, hey, I have an idea. You know, there's a problem in the world. And if I put this bit of tech together with this idea and these people, I think I could solve that problem. And, and that's always when, you know, we always lean in. Really? Tell me more. Um, and so you spend a lot of your day kind of, kind of on that. Um, and then there's a lot of operational stuff. That's the part nobody talks about. Um, finding capital is difficult. Um, putting it in an institutional framework is is difficult. Lots of lawyers are needed and, and lots of administrators and so on. So a chunk of every day is on some amount of, of, of operational matter and reporting. And um, what we do is all very um, private. And therefore, there's no stock market to look for the price of your asset. You know, you have to figure that out and report it to your investors and so on. So there's a large, large component of that. And then, as I, as I said at the start, um, you know, what, what's exciting but also challenging is right now, somebody uh, in a place I've probably never visited is creating the next big thing. And, you know, what it, it is equal parts excitement and, and, and difficulty because I know they're out there. How do I find them? You know, and, and I kind of keeps me up at night. What are we missing? What are we missing? <laughs> you know, so we're always looking, we're always searching and in and, and adventure capital called sourcing. You know, what's your sourcing machine? How do you use a mix of people and network and software to find out about companies early and, and get involved with the ones that suit your thesis? Having spoken to lots of students at Cambridge who want to work in tech, Almost all of them say that they plan on moving Silicon Valley, either after they graduate or in a few years' time. Do you think that 
that's the right move? Or is Europe now one of the best technological hubs in the world to work in? Well, I voted with my feet. Um, I, I think Europe is just amazing. Um, I'm from the US originally. I, I grew up in, in Massachusetts and did my, my first degree there and started my career there. But I, you know, I founded Isomer to be all about Europe. Why is that? Well, the opportunity is, is immense. I think it's bigger than most people know. And there are fewer people working on it. So Silicon Valley is, of course, amazing, but boy, is it competitive. You know, there are great people there. They're working <laughs> night and day to build the future, and it's wonderful. Uh, so you can go there and you can compete with, with them, or you can stay in Europe where the prices uh, are cheaper, you know, round prices, particularly in the early stages, are lower. Um, there's a lot of talent but you have a, a more level landscape in some ways because there isn't a Silicon Valley of Europe. There isn't a concentration as you have, you know, the U.S. is largely Silicon Valley, New York, Boston, whereas Europe, there's 20 or 30 or more cities where great tech is happening. So you don't, you know, if, if, you're, if you're a German, you don't have to move to London. You know, if you're British, you don't have to move to the Nordics. They're all great, and you can do great things there. But you know what I mean? You, you have this sort of opportunity that's more um, fragmented. And, and normally fragmentation in industry is a bad thing. I think it's a good thing in this case because we need a diversity of ideas, a diversity of talent. And, and therefore, um, that's part of what makes me so excited about Europe. You have the challenge of finding, finding the, the big idea and the, and the team. but um, because of this availability of, of talent in all these different cities and of different consumer markets, dif different corporate markets, you know, ideas develop in, a, in a, perhaps a more rich and diverse way. Um, there is a lot of capital now, there was, which wasn't necessarily true 10 years ago. So if you have a great idea, I believe, I believe you can get it funded. <laughs> That's more evidence of that, of that every year. So yeah, for my money, well, i as I say, I voted with my feet. I think Europe is just um, the UK and Europe. Um, when I say Europe, I mean the UK. Um, although we aren't, you know, we, we Brexited, but um, the UK is still the biggest and most vibrant market in Europe for, for tech. Uh, but I, part of my thesis is that to drive big outcomes, to have a company that really grows and, and becomes dominant in its segment, a real leader, it must go international. So I, I kind of don't care where it comes from. You know, it could be from the UK, it could be from, from, from Spain, it could be from Eastern Europe. What matters is where's it going? You know, can it be really important to a large group of customers around the world? Can the products that that company is creating really change the game in, in, the, in their market. And if so, then we must help it go international. And, and at some point in time, whatever that means, maybe that means go to the US or go to Asia, certainly means regional and, and multi-regional in, in, within Europe, um, but, then, but then onward to the US and Asia as well. Since Isomer is a tech-focused fund of funds, I would like for us to talk a little bit about tech more broadly now. What sector in tech do you think has the potential of being the most disruptive in the near future? 
And what are some of the technological innovations currently taking place that you are most excited about? It's difficult to talk about sectors uh, in particular because every sector's being disrupted by digital technologies, disrupted or improved, sh shall we say. So in every industrial sector you can think about, you can you can look at it and talk about how digital technologies are, are disrupting it. Um, so is one moving faster than the other? Well, certainly fintech, you know, fintech receives the highest amount of capital in Europe, and it's a massive industry that is heavily tech based and, and therefore there's a ton of innovation there. It's great. But that's not that's not new. That's been happening for a long time and, and will continue. Um, I would have had we had this discussion five years ago, I would have said that certain industries which need to be disrupted haven't been. Um, and I'm thinking the big ones, healthcare, education, government. Um, but even in these, uh, COVID has been a real um, boost <laughs> in a funny way, right? Could COVID's a terrible thing, and we're all we're still dealing with it. But on the other side, it's been a catalyst for change in many of these older sectors that really need it. So what we see in healthcare, for example, is is digital innovations being adopted much more quickly than ever before because there's a there's a necessity within health systems and within medical uh, providers of all kinds. That, that startup products are being tried. And it used to be that it would take you 18 months, if you're a founder in, in a healthcare company, it would take you 18 months to get your product into, say, the National Health Service. And now that's happening in three or four months. And that's just wonderful. I mean, we're so excited. If it's a great product, it, it will get to the people who need it and, and be effective much more quickly than ever before. We see the same in education. We see... Um, moves into into government. Um, it's probably the slower of the lot, but 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 I'm really excited about that because those were sectors that were not not really moving. Oh, by the way, I should say something about climate. So public markets and and bigger bigger companies have been serious about climate a bit longer. You start to see venture capital getting really serious about about climate technologies and and what can venture capital do, you know, to bring new products. New, new software, new hardware solutions. And that's exciting to see. So there's a lot of money and a lot of talent and a lot of effort being shifted that way. So I'm, you know, we all need that. That's just <laughs> going to help us all heal the world. And that's exciting to see. And some of the smartest people I know are, are launching climate funds or um, focusing more on climate, even within generalist funds. So that that's super exciting. On the technology side, you know, it's not, not a surprise. I think quantum computing is going to be a game changer and it's it's moving. Um, it's always, I find it difficult to understand where venture capital can play a role in quantum computing because of a core research and development is is high capital intensity and long, long holding periods, shall we say. That's not really what venture's good at. Um, However, we do see um, we do see companies growing to support the development of quantum computers, and once those become really available, that that changes the game in lots of lots of ways. Um, just the power and speed of those computers will will really change how we use computers and what they can do. 
And that leads to, you know, one of the obvious big things now, the crypto web three technologies. So, so cryptography will change a lot when quantum computing becomes available. But of course, we see a lot happening in crypto and Web3. It's a bit of a wild west now, and lots of smart people are trying to figure it out. And that's very exciting. We definitely want to get more into crypto in a minute. But before that, please, can I just ask you a little bit more about some of your portfolio companies? Because Emma and I have been looking through them over the past couple of weeks. And there are so many fascinating ones that we'd love to ask you about. But is there one that you are particularly excited about at the moment? You know, I knew you were going to ask me that question, and I hate that question, because it's it's a little bit like, um, you know, asking a parent uh, which of their four kids is their favorite, you know. Um, <laughs> so, well, maybe I'll, I'll just tell you about a couple recent investments. How about that? Rather than, rather than select, um, because, you know, we have now about 1,400 companies within our portfolios. So, I mean, there's everything. There's every sector, every big idea, and you know, the more the more I I look at it, the more excited I get. Um, we we've done a few interesting co-investments lately. That is, companies that are growing, and we help them with their next round of, of finance. Um, two that we've done out of our out of our new co-investment fund, I'm really excited about. And and incidentally, interestingly, they're both. Um, climate positive, shall we say. We, did, we didn't invest in them necessarily because they're climate positive, but they are. One of them is a company called Cowboy, which makes um, e-bikes. And I, I just think it's a, it's a wonderful team and a wonderful company. They have developed a bicycle that is based around a software system, as opposed to most bicycles in the world, which are hardware with some, with some electronics bolted on. And Cowboy is, you know, one of a new generation. And a lot of the, the tech press has, has awarded the new Cowboy version for um, the, the kind of moniker of best e-bike you can buy in the world. That's an amazing achievement for a company that as young as Cowboy. And this is possible by real innovation, by designing a product from, from the ground up and considering how software and hardware can work together to give you a better experience. They have fairly recently, just late last year, launched into the U.S. And I love this for lots of reasons. I mean, I love bicycles. I like cycling to work. But on a, on a bigger scale, people are getting healthier. People are getting out of cars and, and onto bikes. And that's kind of a global trend. And, and again, COVID kind of boosted this. Um, we noticed that, that bike sales went crazy everywhere because people don't want to get on a bus or a train, especially during the lockdown times, and they do want to ride bicycles. So I, um, Cowboy is uh, going, is, is progressing super well, and, and they've, they have a big, exciting future ahead of them. Another, another company we, we invested in recently is called Refurbed, and this is a marketplace for used electronics. And that as a, that's not probably the right strap line. That doesn't sound so exciting. But if if you look at um, how people buy mobile phones, you know, the, somebody buys some some father in a family buys the new iPhone and he gives an iPhone to his son or daughter, or or his daughter wants a new phone. And phones are pretty expensive. And and in the old days, maybe you had one per family, and now you have many per family. So what Refurbed is doing is allowing 
um, phones to be put on a marketplace to be refurbished so they're like new and you can buy them um, you know have, having they're used and so lower cost and they've gone through a, a check and refurbishment process so that's quite exciting because the the reuse of a phone is so much better for the climate than building a new phone and recycling a phone so making you know particularly uh, electronic assets making them work harder and have a longer lifetime is is great for the planet it's great for you know, i have i have two small sons who keep begging me for a phone and uh, you know, there will come a point where I will just love going on reef. I'm, I'm resisting to the moment, but um, going on there and getting getting their first phones, which I know will go in the bottom of a book bag and be be mistreated. Um, so, you know, this is, a, a, again, a company which is doing extremely well. It's doing good in the world. It's by doing well. And what a, what a great product, you know, for as, as markets evolve. These are all uh, incredible companies um, that you have invested in, and it sounds very, very exciting. I'm going to keep an eye on those ones. Um, so as we mentioned a little bit before crypto and in, the, in general, uh, digital finance, I would like to ask some questions about this. Um, so digital finance is now continuing to flourish, um, and there is currently this emergence of crypto funds in the fund of funds landscape, which I think is really, really interesting to see. And I'm really keen to see how this is going to turn out. Um, but where do you see this going in the next 10 to 20 years? And what are some of the challenges that crypto funds and digital currencies uh, altogether might, fa might face in the near future, um, maybe considering government regulation as well? Yeah, there's, there's a lot in that. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, Emma, I can't give you the 10 and 20 year outlook. Um, if I could give you the one year outlook, I'd be, you know, already pretty happy about that. But crypto and, and Web3 markets are moving very quickly. Uh, there's a new idea every minute. Um, and, and there's a new way that people are working in that space every month. So I don't think predictions on the 10 and 20 year timeline make, make a lot of sense at this point. What we do see is that the, the blockchain technology can be applied to many different problems in the world. And, and that's happening now. Um, companies, the, the funds, many funds are being created. The funds are not standard in the way that VC funds are. You know, VC funds are basically follow a similar format. They are limited partnerships. They buy equity in startups to help those startups grow. Uh, those startups at some point get acquired and, and the equity is purchased by someone else and paid back to the funds, right? Crypto operates in a rather different way. Um, there may be equity at the start, but it tokenizes later or, or there are simply the companies sell tokens. And therefore, this, this idea of buying equity doesn't really make a lot of sense in the crypto world. So just one example of how approach to crypto is and, and, and must be different. If you, if you tokenize something, anything, um, a company or a project or, or a piece of art or a building, uh, it has a liquid nature to it that equity does not, private equity does not. And therefore, you know, the, the standards of venture capital, a 10-year partnership, a 10-year lifespan of a fund, for example, may, may not really make sense. So when I look at the crypto fund world, and, and we 
meet, I would say, between one and three new crypto funds every week. Um, that That's how fast it's, it's going. Um, you see many different formats. You see many different approaches. Uh, by format, I mean you see hedge fund formats. You see short-term vehicles. You see kind of wrappers around types of investing that would would not only produce capital gains, but would also produce forms of income like staking or um, other other derivative things you can do in crypto, which just aren't a feature of VC. So <laughs> there's a you know a lot of work being done right now to figure out if I would you know have a thesis and an investment strategy to pursue this sort of project and this sort of asset, what would be the right fund model to do that? And and we spend a lot of time with managers kind of brainstorming, debating, discussing, well, you know, if, if the asset behaves like that, then what would be the right format of a fund? Um, and, and you shouldn't necessarily use the VC model, but that's what we know. And that's what limited partners are happy with. So there's a, there's a bunch of challenges around, around that, um, particularly duration. Would you hold the asset? Um, if it's liquid, you don't need to hold it. You could sell your tokens, right, at any point in time. So you, you can look to inspiration to public fund managers and hedge fund managers and so on. So that, that's one big challenge. Um, there's a whole different way that, that crypto and Web3 projects are sourced and understood. So there's VC is already an insider's market, and, and crypto and Web3 is an insider's market within the insider's market. So it's it really is about um, being on the right uh, chat channels on on Discord and Telegram and so on, and 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 knowing knowing the right people doing exciting projects, um, which is a net a networking game. What's interesting? There are many interesting things about it. But one thing that's interesting is if you're you really want to get into it, it's it's quite open because it's quite new. So you know if if you're a good computer scientist or a good entrepreneur, and and this is an area you want to work in. You just have to put in some time to to meet people, to do your work, to understand where you can add value, and it's open. You can you can crack in. I think. I wonder. You know, in five and ten years' time, probably it will become more formal. There will be, um, you know, firms which which are the real dominant experts in this, and kind of the barriers to entry will go up. But it's pretty open right now, and and a little bit of a wild west, which is. Which is pretty cool, you know. If you if you figure out a way to play it, there's uh, there's a lot to play for. You spoke earlier about being drawn to VC because of the impact that you can have through your work, and I think a lot of our listeners are interested in maximizing the impact that they have in their careers as well. Do you think that working in VC enables you to have a bigger personal impact than if you were, say, running your own company or working for one of the big tech companies? For sure. I mean, I, I did work for big companies and, you know, I had an impact. Um, it's hard to measure because you're you're kind of a wheel in a big machine. Um, but, okay, I did my little part to help the machine run better, faster and cheaper. But, but you know, day to day, if entrepreneurs, uh, they really can leverage resources. They create something from nothing, which is kind of like magic. And by gathering people around them, to around a cause, you know, around an idea, around a product. Um, that's how most of the big innovations in the world happen. 
And my my little role in the ecosystem is to is to try to help them, try to help them with whatever they they need and whatever we can provide. Certainly, it's it's capital, right? When you when you need to build that team or you want to hire to launch into a new market or whatever, you you need money. You also need help of different forms at different times in the company's development, and that's part of what we try to offer as well. Um, there's no substitute for getting people around the table in, in any company or project that have done something similar before. You know, if you're launching your product into the U.S., well, there are lots of people who've done that. And maybe rather than just make all your own mistakes, you should try to work with them. Some of them are within the investor world. Some of them are operators. Uh, some of them are advisors. And so what we try to do is, is gather resources and support all these great entrepreneurs doing doing whatever they're doing. And yeah, I feel my impact, you can sort of measure it if you look at um, the number of jobs created across our portfolio, the amount of capital from other sources that come in because we've been there very early. And you know, when, when our, our partners, our VC partners are investing, really when it's kind of the, the two guys in a garage scenario. And it's funny, the two guys in a garage is like the, the old story in the movies about Steve Jobs and, and so on. It's pretty true, actually. Like when you really meet companies at the start, it's two guys in a garage or it's, 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 it's two ladies in a kitchen or an attic or, <laughs> you know, so it's always like at home or, or some space you can find. It's always a small group, two or three or four. And that's where big, big things kind of always start. So we're getting involved there and trying to trying to help them with the money and with the experience and and then connecting them to the next group of people that can help. And I, I do believe that you need, you know, when you're in that garage, you need you need certain kind of help. Then you have a team of 50 and you need a different kind of help, a different sort of people. And then you have 500 people and you're in 10 countries and then you need a very different kind of help. So I think for us and our partners, knowing which uh, segment of that journey we can be most helpful with. That's how we drive big impact. You know, be, be clear where you're helpful. And you know what? When you're not helpful, get out of the way. <laughs> it's also important to say, I've done my bit, and now we need to get somebody else involved who specializes in the next stage of growth. I wanted to ask you kind of a more general question. Um, since you have so, so much experience as such a broad portfolio in ISMR with like over 1400 companies. Do you think that, or do you know um, a company that at the moment is worth, let's say maybe 15, less than 15 million today, but maybe in the near future, in a few years time, it could worth billions and why? This could also be one of your companies that you're supporting right now. (laughs) So you want me to get into the unicorn prediction game? Uh, well, it's funny you say that because that's exactly the game I'm not in. And, and I'll tell you why. Um, I, I, over the years, I've managed to meet people who were early investors in some of the biggest companies, you know, the fa- Facebook and, and Twitter and, you know, uh, American investors that I knew. And when you attend their marketing meetings, they say, ah, yes, I knew it. You know, when it was a tiny company with three people, I knew it. But if you actually go drink a beer with them and and really talk about, well, how did you know it and what did you see? Actually, what comes out pretty much always is, you know, I just like 
the talent that I saw and I thought the ambition and I thought it was a good idea, but I didn't know. And, and usually the honest story is there were, there were 15, 20 companies in the portfolio and that wasn't the one I was most excited about. So I believe having heard those stories again and again for, for, for many, many years, I believe that one's predictive power at those early stages is very low. So what VCs do is build a portfolio, and what we do is build an even bigger portfolio. And that's in direct recognition that I can't, I don't know, Emma, I can't answer your question. And, and partly, if I knew, or if anybody knew, that this company of, of three or five people at, at 15 million, you know, is going to be a, a, a multi-unicorn, then you should just invest in that one. Don't do anything more, right? But the, but the reality is there are so many factors that influence success. The, the development of the product, the timing of that product to meet the market, the ability to scale, what competitors are doing. Um, maybe that product you know, is upset by, is disrupted itself even before it gets out. So there's so many factors. That the, the real value creation is not in the original idea that you can see of those days. The real value creation is in the execution of bringing that product to market and, and scaling it. So I, you know, based on the fact that I, I don't think my predictive power is high at all, we diversify. We, we hit more shots on goal and that by, by making more shots on goal, some of those shots are going to get in. So, so it's a long way of saying, you know, if I would, if I would sift out all the sub 50 companies in my portfolio and show them to you, I can't tell you which ones will be unicorns. What I can tell you is some of them will, for sure. And it's a fun, you know, we can, we can sit around and uh, guess and argue about it. But my experience of the, of the last you know, couple of decades is the one you think is going to be great in those early days often is not, and vice versa. <laughs> I'm on record for lots of now quite big companies where I thought it was a dumb idea or I didn't see it where, you know, ah, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. And sure enough, it's a it's a multi-unicorn, you know, a few years later. So that, you know, causes me to think that um, being supportive and putting your best thinking and knowledge into things that could be big is probably the best strategy. But but believing that you know in those early stages is probably not true, and therefore diversification. The earlier you're investing, the more you need to diversify. By the time the, I mean, on the other end of the spectrum, by the time the company is already a unicorn, most of the risk is out, right? Pro probably the product is working, customers like it, they may they're paying for it. So you can, you know what I mean? In the, in the early days, you don't have a product, so you're asking yourself, can I build this product? Will will customers like it? Will they pay for it? And and by the time companies getting bigger, all that's finished and known. So the risk to investing is lower, and therefore your need to diversify as an investor is less. That's a really interesting uh, point of view. Uh, thank you. I like to consider this a more strategic way of thinking things. Um, we have time for one more question before wrapping up this episode. Is there any advice you can give for somebody that wants to build the big startup um, to help them succeed? Well, there's a lot of, a lot of <laughs> typical advice given. Um, I guess for anyone thinking about a, a startup, um, what I often think about is in order to make a startup successful, you'll have to work very hard for a very long time. And so 
you should work on an idea which you think can have high value to a set of customers, but also something you can love and really be passionate about. And and working on a startup just to work on a startup is is going to be more challenging than working on a startup because you believe strongly in what you can build and what you can achieve. And uh, my my observation of many many entrepreneurs and and my experience as an entrepreneur is if you're loving what you're doing and you're genuinely excited and, and passionate about it, it doesn't feel like work. Uh, you know what, what keeps me working late at night and what's what gets me up early in the morning and that I just love it and and that's you know what I hope for people setting out on the difficult journey of entrepreneurship find something you can really love um, that a customer can also really love and uh, you know when you think about a startup it's always products are kind of easy to make these days you know you can put a bit of tech together and create an app or create a marketplace or whatever. The question is who who would benefit from this and and w- would they be you know as excited about it as you and how many of those people are and what are they willing to pay so if you if you have a product that impacts a billion people um, that's pretty exciting and that can be pretty big and and some products are really beautiful but they only there's only 10 people who might agree with you that <laughs> that they want to buy it so so I think there's you know I guess that's my advice in a box being being personally passionate and exciting excited about an idea is going to drive you forward and give you that internal motivation that you will need through good times and bad but also think with the end in mind you know what does this look like in 5 and 10 years and why is it important and try to work on problems which can um, can have a big impact on on the world and people great thank you so much for being with us today joe Max and I really enjoyed hearing about your incredible career and it was a uh, truly a pleasure to have your to listen to your insights about all these different topics well thanks for having me again and thanks for letting me dodge a lot of your questions and go go off on rambling side talks as I <laughs> as I like to do but another time we'll talk about government regulation in crypto and so on <laughs> thank you so much Thanks very much to Joe for joining us on QTalks. This podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. To find out more about QTech, spelled C-U-T-E-C, or to listen to previous episodes, please visit our website at qtech.io and follow our Twitter at QTech.